Besides hot, how's the 10 a.m. doing? You know, it's, a seri- it's going to be a serious preach when I got given a lappy before, um, just to channel my inner TD Jakes, just for if, if this starts to get a bit, a, a bit hectic. Uh, I am really excited to be uh, ending off our series in Jonah. Uh, as a church, we've been uh, journeying through the minor prophets uh, in the midst of this year, and I absolutely love Jonah. Um, Jonah is such an interesting character. His story is unlike anything else. And I think it really speaks to a life of impact, but also a a life that is totally built uh, on God's heart for his people. And so I really hope that it's uh, been speaking to you if you've been tracking with us. I'd encourage you if you've missed any uh, of the last three weeks, first three weeks of the uh, series, catch up on our YouTube channel. And uh, I would encourage you, Today is going to be a special one because we're wrapping up the series, but uh, I know it's going to do something. I'll, I'll catch you up on the story very quickly. I really see Jonah as a massive conversation, conversation uh, between all the different characters. You have Jonah chapter one kickoff, and God will actually speak to Jonah. Call him to actually go send his message to a pagan people, the Ninevites, and Jonah will run away. Jonah chapter two, he will have a conversation with God. He will actually pray from the belly of a fish. Then you get to Jonah chapter three, and now God will actually use his prophet Jonah to speak to the Ninevites and bring a message of repentance. His message is simple. 40 days, turn back to God or else. It's an eight-word sermon. It's probably the shortest sermon ever, and yet what it sets off is probably one of the biggest single event revivals in all of human history. Because the Ninevites were a great big city, 120,000 plus people, and amazingly, they all repent. This is actually what they say at the end of verse, uh, at the end of verse nine, uh, in verse nine in chapter three. The Ninevites say, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. It's where we ended off last week. Now, if you were a good playwright, a good scriptwriter, if you were directing a movie, this would be the best part, place to end. This is your big happily ever after, big bang, big finish moment. But Jonah doesn't end at the end of chapter three. It gives us Jonah chapter four. And I think God does it very intentionally because he wants us to see what happens in Jonah chapter four. See, in in Jonah chapter three, you get a picture of what Jonah did. You get a picture of what God did. You get a picture of Nineveh turning back to God. But what you get in Jonah chapter four is a picture into who Jonah really was in the position and place of his heart. And God is wanting to go further, a step further, because it's gonna take a turn. Why don't you pray with me and we'll get into this. Father God, as we, as we gather again, whether we're in this very hot room or we are cool at home and loving life, it's my prayer that as we come around your word and your truth again, that we would hold fast to the word that can transform our hearts. Knowing that, Lord, these are not just words on a page or words on a screen, that actually this is your word, the word of God that we hold it higher than anything else, that actually we elevate it to the place where it is the ultimate truth for us. Because we know it goes far beyond just words on a page. It is actually words that can transform a human heart. 
And Lord, when we are honest, when we get to the end of ourselves, when we realize the state of our heart, we know that we cannot do this on our own. We know that the brokenness within us can only be transformed by the power of your word and your spirit. And so it's my prayer you would do that again as we hear uh, Jonah's end, the end of his story and the end of his uh, interaction with you. Would you speak to us? Would you meet with us? Would you be over my words over this time in these moments we get to share together? And everybody said, amen. Now, as we jump in, I wanna, I, I mentioned the, the story takes a bit of a turn. So let me set the scene. Chapter four kicks off like this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Nineveh has just repented. Nineveh has just turned back to God. God has relented and said, all right, you will not suffer the disaster, I promised, because you have turned back to me. And immediately there's a reaction from Jonah, the one who brought the message, the message of repentance, the message of hope, that there's a way you can get out of this. And yet it displeased him. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's chapter one. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. The story takes a turn. Jonah chapter four goes in a very different direction because this is not a Hollywood tale. This is real life and God wants us to see it. He has something to say to us. I really believe if you look at Jonah chapter four, what you will find is an examination. An examination of Jonah, an examination of who he was, of what he thought, what he thought about himself, what he thought about God, what he thought about others. And in the midst of that examination, there are a few things that I think it's calling us today to examine. I think there's four things it's calling us to examine. It calls us to examine our anger, our preference, our perspective, and ultimately, we're called to examine our hearts. These are the things that will be examined in the life and the end of Jonah's story. So let's jump into the first one. Examine our anger. Right from verse one, we see Jonah's reaction as God brings salvation to the Ninevites. And it's a reaction of deep, deep anger. He's angry with God. He's frustrated with God. God hasn't done what he was hoping for. I think how he had played it out in his head, even in his obedience to God, in bringing this message to this pagan people was, I'm gonna bring a message. It will fall on deaf ears. And in 40 days time, I get to grab my popcorn and watch the enemy get destroyed by the holy righteous fire of God. But it doesn't go to plan. And he is left angry and frustrated with God because God, you didn't, get in, you, you didn't do it the way I wanted. You didn't follow the plan I had. How many times have we had moments like that? Moments where we are angry, where we are frustrated, and it's actually with God and how he acts, what he does, or in this case, what he didn't do. God, I, I was hoping you would destroy them. They are the enemy. They have hurt us. They have caused so much damage. They are brutal. They don't deserve this. And it leaves them angry and frustrated. But I think it's so important in the midst of our emotion, because we're humans, 
We have this problem sometimes in that our emotions are the things that lead us. And so it's important to really pay attention to especially the high negative emotions. When we are super angry, when we're super sad, when we're super frustrated, we we are called to pay attention to it because it will actually reveal the position of our heart. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says this, and it's quoting from the Psalms, in your anger do not sin. Now we think anger is the problem, anger is not. Anger is an emotion we will experience. God himself experiences the emotion. The question should be, where does it originate and what does it lead us to do? Because if we understand the source of our anger, it helps us understand the position of our heart. And ultimately, it will lead us to one of two places, either a godly place or an ungodly place. Either a place of righteous anger or a place of unrighteous anger. It very quickly will examine where we find ourselves. And I love how God responds. I love how in the midst of, and and please don't miss this, Jonah was the runaway rebel prophet. He was the runaway rebel prophet in chapter one, and he is still the runaway rebel prophet in chapter four. But what is consistent throughout the story is God's compassion to him, is as he flees in chapter one, and as he is frustrated and angry with God in chapter four, we actually find God pursuing him the whole way. God's compassion for him in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his frustration, God is right there. And I love what God does in in verse four. It says, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In the midst of Jonah having what can only be described as a temper tantrum. I've got two toddlers, I know what this looks like. This is a pro parent tip. If you've ever had a toddler, you'll know. If you haven't, don't worry, here's a tip. When your toddler is having an absolute meltdown, tantrum, a good parent will not disengage and leave them to their own, own space. They will engage them, pursue them, love them, make them feel safe, but they will also try to disarm them with questions. God actually will turn the, turn the situation back on Jonah and ask a question. Is it good to be angry? Do you understand why you are angry? Do you understand? He pulls it back to Jonah to disarm Jonah in the midst of his anger and frustration. And often that is his response to you and me. In the midst of our tantrum, in the midst of of our anger, our frustration, he compassionately pursues us, engages us, and will hold up the mirror so that we can examine where we find ourselves. Second thing he calls us to examine is examine our preference. What had Jonah hoped for? He had hoped he would bring a message, it falls on deaf ears, he would get to watch them have a great barbecue. And yet that doesn't happen. But at his heart, there is still something going wrong. Because look at what he does next. Even in the midst of their repentance, even after witnessing possibly the greatest single event revival in all of history, what does he do in the very next verse? Verse five says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah had gone in obedience. He had given the message to the Ninevites that God had called. But as I had said last week, it is possible to walk in the will of God but not share the heart of God. So he does the bare minimum. He brings a message that is short, sharp. It has no grace, no care, no nothing. And when it goes the way he doesn't want it to, he says, all right, day one, you turned around. I'm gonna go and find myself a nice seat. I'm gonna leave the city, I'm gonna go up on a hill, I wanna see what happens because there's still 39 days for you to mess this up. 
There's still 39 days for this to be shown as not genuine, and then I get what I want. Do you see the, the heart of Jonah in the midst of it? He doesn't just have a problem in, in what he's doing. He has a problem in his preference because his real problem is that God has chosen to save these people, but these people are the enemy. These people are not my preference. This way is not my preference. I mentioned it a few times in the midst of this series and even in its lead up. There's a big reveal moment here in terms of what was going on in the heart of Jonah. And the big reveal is that Jonah actually had fallen into a deep trap of sin and that sin was deep-rooted racism. His preference had actually now moved to prejudice. God, how can you save them? They are bad, we are good. We are superior, we are worthy of your salvation. They are inferior, they're not worthy of it. Do you know what they've done? Do you know who they are? Do you know what they've done to us and now you wanna reward them with this? We are better, they are not. Now I'm aware whenever you walk into this type of a topic in the country we live in with the history we have, it's really important to be very clear. In a country where the history uh, is that racism in this country was justified using the Bible, it's very clear that you, we need to understand when it comes to Scripture, back to front, top to bottom, when, it talk, when we talk about the heart of God, racism at its core is a sin. According to Scripture, according to God's heart, there is no partiality. There is no preference. There is no superior and inferior. In fact, that's not the heart of God. That's not what he would uh, declare in his word at all. And it's because racism at its core is a heart issue. And it's a heart issue because it's a sin issue. Now, we may have our own struggles with racism within ourselves. We might have our own struggles as we deal with the prejudices we might have, whether we're aware of them or not. But in the midst of that, it is so important to move into this space of, ex of examination because what it does is identify the source and identify how the thing plays out and opens up the door to invite God into that space so that he can actually heal that brokenness and bring wholeness in that area. God's very clear. He shows no partiality. He would save Jonah and he would save Nineveh. He holds to all his creation being all his creation. He doesn't value one over the other. In fact, he actually values it all the same because he made it all. He is in all. He is through all. But I want to show through Jonah's journey how, this, how this, this move happened. I think it started with this because it's important to know where that preference and that prejudice comes from. I think for Jonah, it probably started like this. Often what, uh, what hurts us will turn to what we hate. That actually our hurt can become our hate. And when it came to the Ninevites who were part of the Assyrian Empire, great enemies of the chosen nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they had had lots of examples of the brutality of the Assyrians against them. They had actually hurt the people of God many, many times. Three times in war, they would absolutely nearly destroy them. They were brutal. They would behead their men. They would enslave. They would take away into exile. There was a lot of hurt there. And so it's, it's easy to understand that the hurt now turns to a hatred. And then that preference goes a, a, a step further because now it turns to prejudice. Because we are born into a people and into a family and into a group and into, we, it, it's true. 
And so our preference now becomes our way of doing things. Because there's a way we will go about things. The way we celebrate is a certain way. The way we communicate is a certain way. And when we're met with someone who is from a different group, a different family, a different culture, a different something, the other, suddenly that doesn't look so good. Because we do things this way. We go about it this way. We attack it this way. This is how we deal. How you do it is different. Therefore, there's something wrong. And it leads us to this process. If we idolize something, we have to demonize something else. Jonah's problem was that he was idolizing himself and his people, and so had to demonize the other. He had to idolize, hey, we are the nation of Israel. We're the ones God chose. We're the ones that worship the one true God. We're the ones that have walked in his ways, that have history with him. We're the ones who have gone to battle in his name. You didn't. If we idolize that, we have to demonize the other because the people who look different, the people who don't worship the same, the people who don't go about their lives the same way suddenly now become the other. And so when we idolize, we must demonize. And Jonah finds this process and it begins with the small layers and just de- it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think this is true throughout Jonah's whole story and we see it in so many examples through these four chapters. Jonah had a good theology, but a bad heart. He had a good theology, a good understanding of who God was, how God worked, what God wanted from him. But he did not share the heart of that. Look at what he even says about God in in verse 3. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's actually pointing back to a moment in Exodus chapter 34 where God will say these words about himself. It was a harsh time. Israel were out in the wilderness being led by Moses. Moses was meeting with God up on the mountain and they would uh, fall into idolatry. They would create a calf out of gold and they would worship it. And in the midst of that idolatry and that failure, God would tell them this, that I am merciful that I am slow to anger. He would actually reveal this part of himself and who he was. But Jonah's heart was not this. Jonah's heart is they are the enemy. How can you show mercy to them? How can you not be angry with them? How do you not destroy them? They are the enemy. He had fallen for this trap, and it's the trap of a religious and judgmental spirit. We're better, they're not. We serve you, they don't. We worship, they don't. We follow your law, they don't. It becomes religious and judgmental and we forget that the grace that was extended to us now can't be extended through us. We forget that the grace that was extended to us is not just for us, it's for everyone. And there's a test, there's a, there's a grid you can run through and, it, and it's just by, through one statement where you can know if you're falling into that trap. If this statement is true, then we have fallen for the trap of being religious and judgmental. If we judge others based on their actions and judge ourselves based on our intentions. If that is true, we're religious and judgmental. We've fallen for the same trap as Jonah because we will judge others by what they do or don't do. Hey, you got that wrong. You messed that up. But didn't you do that last week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a hectic week. It was stressful. The kids were crazy. Work was crazy. Judged by actions, judged by intentions. 
When we're in that space, suddenly we are more holy and they are not. Suddenly we're better and they're not. And we're unable to extend the grace that was extended to us. We forget this truth, that God only saves sinners and we're all sinners. He doesn't save some, he saves sinners. It's what, it, it's what makes the good news of Jesus so different to anything else. Because Romans 3 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All, whole creation, no one's left out. And yet in the midst of that, there is this truth that sin separates us from God. And it is not the scale of the sin, the amount of the sin, the nature of the sin that matters. It is the fact that sin is present that separates us from God. And because of that separation, we are in need of being redeemed and made right with a holy God. And so it doesn't matter because Jonah would look at the Ninevites and say, they were more brutal, they murdered more, they were, they, they were more unholy, therefore. Jonah's cry actually would have been, they are the enemy. God's cry to him in love would be, but don't you know you are all my enemies? that you have all gone against my way, that you have all fallen short. It doesn't matter that there is one who has seemingly done more wrong. There is one who has been more brutal. The fact is you have done wrong. Sin is present, therefore it needs to be dealt with. If we are all the enemies of God, look at how God deals with his enemies. Look at how God will deal with Jonah. Look at how God will deal with Nineveh. God will speak to Jonah and he'll speak to Nineveh. God will love Jonah, and he will love Nineveh. God will save Jonah, and he will save Nineveh. He shows no partiality. He goes after all because God is love. If God is love, that means love has to be for all. Next thing we need to examine, number three, is our, pers our perspective. Jonah's preference had led him to a place where his heart was not in a great space. He was outside the city waiting for a hopeful destruction. And then look what happens. I find it hilarious. Verse six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is angry sitting up on a hill hoping that there will be destruction on the, on the city of Nineveh. I think the only thing worse than being angry is being angry and hot. Remember, Nineveh is literally in modern-day Iraq, desert life. It probably was not a comfortable space to be in. You have to be pretty angry and pretty hopeful that destruction is coming to put yourself in that uncomfortable space for 39 days hoping something goes wrong. I think we have a new appreciation of heat just considering this room right now. But it continues. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. We had an obedient whale in, in, in number two. We've got an obedient worm in number three. Far more obedience in a worm than even in a prophet. That it attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah finds his space. He wants to watch the destruction that he's hoping will happen. But what God in this moment is wanting to do with this rebel, runaway, tantrum-throwing prophet is expose a brokenness in his perspective. 
Where had God called Jonah? He called him to the city of Nineveh. He goes in, he gives a message, they repent. And instead of his perspective being to watch and examine possibly the greatest single event revival in history, what is his perspective? He changes it to outside the city. He wants to look down on what he hopes will be destroyed. And it's crazy because he had just preached a message where 120,000 people had, been, had turned back to God. And instead of rejoicing, he is unhappy. Instead of being uh, absolutely overwhelmed with how God has moved, he is miserable. And I think the warning is, is, is so present here for us. The truth is we can be very successful and have the wrong perspective, the wrong position of our heart, the wrong understanding of what's going on, and it will lead us to one place, and that place is being miserable. That place is being frustrated. That place is being angry. And yet, we were still successful. He preached a message, and 120,000 people got converted. Successful, and yet he is miserable. I think the only way that we can truly understand what, to, what it means to be content and have satisfaction in what God has called us to is when we share his heart. Is actually when we share, when what makes God happy makes us happy. What makes God angry makes us angry. It's only when we share that heart do we actually find that space where we are totally satisfied in him. And so it centers on our worship of him. It centers on our relationship with him. I think there's one thing that Jonah throughout this whole story had missed, and I really believe it's something we cannot miss. It reminded me of a story early on in the uh, beginning of this year, uh, went through a bit of a, a, a hectic, stressful time, probably like my most crazy time in my professional existence. There was so much going on, it seemed like there was crisis going on. It felt like I had to get ready for meetings that were really important and took a lot of effort. And there was so much, so many moving parts. I was stressed, struggling, not feeling great. And uh, often I will work at the dining room table at home. Dining room looked like it had a bomb that hit it. Papers everywhere, everything trying to go. I'm stressed, getting ready for what's happening. Mo hectic week. And in the midst of it, Nikita, my wife said, hey, listen, I just need to quickly go to the shop. Jaden, our 18-month-old, he's sleeping. Lily Beth is playing. Just keep an eye out. I said, cool, no stress. I'm going to carry on. And so she went off to the shops. I was left alone. I'm, start, I, I, I'm working. And about a, a few minutes later, my three-year-old Lily Beth popped her little head over the table. As I was stressed and focused and busy and trying to just get this thing done. And she popped her head over and she said, Daddy, Daddy. And I'm like, Yes, Lady Beth. And she said, you, you want to come see my room? And I was like, I did what um, every parent has done, and there's no judgment here. I said, just give me five minutes. Just give me five minutes, then I'll come see your room. And she said, okay, okay, okay. She ran off. And uh, I think she lost her watch because ten, 10 minutes went by, and she popped her head back. And the little head popped up again and said, Daddy, do you want to take a little bit of a break? just a little bit of a break, come, come, come see my room. And it was so cute that I couldn't say no. 
in the midst of everything that was going on, I couldn't say no. And so she took me by the hand and she walked me down the hall and we turned left into her bedroom. And as I stood at the door, I got to experience what I really hope every single dad of a little girl experiences one time, at least one time in your life. She had set out for us on her carpet a tea party. And she had made a special place for me to sit. And she had a, a bunch of, uh, of her toys ready to go because she wanted to know who I want to sit next to. And so I had a choice between her pink bunny and her white cat. And we had a tea party. And in that moment, I, like, I just want you to know, none of the busyness and the stress and everything that was going on in the dining room mattered. Because in that moment, I got to have a tea party with her. See, I think the mistake that Jonah had made was the mistake I made. In the midst of the craziness of the dining room and everything that was going on, I saw it as first an interruption and not as an invitation. Throughout the story consistently, Jonah sees God interrupting him, interrupting his plan, interrupting his desires, interrupting his way. And yet every single time, it was actually God pursuing him and giving him an invitation to relationship an invitation to be a part of God's story, to have an impact in God's kingdom, to actually an invitation to share God's heart. But to Jonah, it was interrupting what he was wanting to do. It was an interruption to his schedule. It was an interruption to his desire. And it's so funny, when you start to see things as interruptions, it automatically will lead you to irritation. But when you see them for what they are, divine invitations, it leads you to a place where you understand it's now a matter of impact because it's about relationship. And there's many ways that we can live a life of impact. Two ways we can choose between is number one, we can choose to be, play a big part in our small story and it will be played against the backdrop of all humanity and everyone trying to get attention. Or we can choose to take a small part in God's big story. And the impact of that will far outweigh anything we could do on our own. Because now God is inviting us into his story to play the part that he has written for us, to have the impact that he has set and the purpose that he has set when he had you in mind as he created you. It's a very special place to find yourself, but we can't get there if we see him always interrupting us and not in fact him inviting us into relationship with him. I think there's a practical challenge to each one of us. As you sit in this church, as you join us on the stream, this is the community God has called you to. And my question is, this church, this family, this community, do you see these things as interruptions or invitations? When we gather on a Sunday, even in the heat of the 10 a.m., is it an interruption to your schedule or an invitation to worship God with those he has placed around you? When you come and serve and give of your time and give of your talents and your skills, is that just an interruption or something that you take as a routine, something to tick the box, something to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling that you're doing something? Or is it in fact an invitation to see the greatest impact on this community in this world because it's God's kingdom advancing? Do we see these things as things that are interrupting our schedules, interrupting our budgets, interrupting our lives? Or do we see them as invitations from God to go deeper with Him, deeper with His people, and have a deeper impact for His kingdom? See, I, th I think when we see it as the invitation that it is, 
it completely changes our perspective. It completely changes how we see the world. Last one is this. This is where I'll wrap it up. We're called to examine our heart. The best way to examine our heart, to understand the state of our heart, is to take a look at God's heart and we'll see how far the gulf is between the two. We'll understand where we have gone wrong, where things are broken, where things are not in alignment. And the, the beautiful thing is we don't have to do the work to get it back in line. We don't have to do the, put the effort in to make it fit. We just invite God into that space and watch how he aligns us. Look at what he does at the end of, uh, of this chapter four. Verse nine says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Jonah's a little bit dramatic. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Funny thing is, this is the end of the book. That, this is how, it book, how, how, how God chooses to end this passage. And even the cattle. Jonah's perspective had got so broken, his heart was so far from the heart of God that God has to show him. Do you understand? It's almost like comical. It's almost God's sense of humanness. Do you understand how far away your heart is from my heart? Do you understand how wrong your perspective is compared to my perspective? Do you understand that you're fighting me about a plant when your focus should be the 120,000 people that just got saved? Even the cattle, even the cows. Because the truth is the heart of God is not just for Jonah, it's for those 120,000 individuals. It's for even the cattle that they find themselves uh, around. It's actually for every individual everywhere in all eternity. Because God's heart is for people. And I think this is the truth that Jonah had missed. Jonah had been far more worried about things and not people, whereas God is far more worried about people than things. God's heart is for his people. God's heart is for salvation. God's heart is patient, even in the midst of our rebellion. God's heart is actually a heart of compassion. God's heart is actually the heart of pursuit. Even if we choose to run, he will follow us. When we turn and go the other way, he's right there. And I wonder if this morning, if we've forgotten the heart of God for each of us, because the truth is, when we look at our own hearts in light of his heart, we just realize how big the gap is. We just realize how much brokenness there is in our hearts, in its position, in its perspective, in the preferences we hold. Sometimes we know it, sometimes we don't. But the amazing thing is God gives us the opportunity to invite him in, to correct it, to bring it back into alignment, that that which is broken can now be restored. As we wrap up, and the band's gonna join me on stage, I hope throughout this book of Jonah and the story of Jonah, you have realized this. Jonah's not the hero. The whale's not the hero. The worm's not the hero. There is only one hero in the story, and it is God himself. The God who pursues, the God who has compassion, the God who is slow to anger, who is merciful, who is abounding in steadfast love that he is the God who will save Jonah and the God who saves Nineveh, that he saves those who are close and get religious and he saves those that are far and are brutal, 
that actually he has a heart for all people, that he shows no partiality, that he has no preference, that actually he's the God who closes the gap. Even when we try extend the gap by running away, he still follows us. He still pursues us and he does it until the very end. He does it until the last, 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 last second. He's the one who comes after us. If you've got Jewish friends, you can ask them about this. Jewish people will celebrate Yom Kippur once a year, the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, part of the celebration will be a reading of the book of Jonah, start to finish. And the only response from everyone present is this, we are Jonah. That actually we are the ones who run from God and yet he shows us mercy and he pursues us. That he's got a heart that is for us even when our heart is against us, against him. That actually he's the one who closes the gap. He shows no preference. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, we, we, we see your heart for the great city of Nineveh. Those who were pagan, those who were enemies of your people, those who had done unspeakable things. And yet we show how you relent in, in bringing them to a disaster to them. And we can look down at some in some situations and say they're worse than us. They've done more worse. And yet we know that's not your heart. We know your heart is that we were once far away, but you brought us close. That we were enemies stuck in our sin, and yet you made a way for us to be made right with you. It doesn't matter what we do, how far we've gone, how far we've run, you close the gap. Lord, it's not about us doing better. It's not about us being better. It's about you giving your best, your son Jesus, to die, to be buried, to rise again, to defeat death and the grave so that our sin is placed on him and it will die for eternity and his righteousness can be placed on us. Lord, I pray that we would again see you as the hero of the story, as the God who is gracious, as the God who is slow to anger, who has compassion on us in every, in every state. When we are close to you and when we are far, when we are understanding and when we are frustrated. Lord, I pray you do business in hearts right now. I pray even as, as we worship right now that you will help us pick out those moments and those spaces in our heart where there is brokenness that needs to be brought back into alignment and restored by you. Holy Spirit, would you work in every heart? Would you cover over us where we have messed it up, where we have got frustrated, where we have misunderstood? And would we give all glory and all praise and all honor to you. Let's lift up our hearts, our lives. Let's lift up everything we have to our God as we sing.